Hello and welcome to the Delphian podcast. Delphian is an artist-led nomadic gallery focusing on emerging and early career artists. Each episode will feature a different art world practitioner, from artists and gallerists to collectors and curators. If you liked today's episode, please like, share and subscribe. Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Delphian Podcast. I'm Nick J.S. Thompson and with me is Benjamin Murphy. Hello. So today our guest is Charlie Mills, who is one third of the loose curatorial group Collective Ending, um, who are currently in the midst of their year-long series of exhibitions entitled Absinthe, which is housed in the Spit and Sawdust pub in South London. Um, As well as this, you work... um, a few roles, I suppose, for another one of our favourite South London galleries, which is Hannah Barry. Um, hello, how are you? Thank you for coming. I'm good. Hello, thank you for having me. That's all right. So tell us a little bit about how you got into curating. Um, what were your intentions when you were starting out? Uh, well, I mean, first, I don't really actually think of myself as a curator at all. I okay. mean, um, I came to London to, to study art. I did a foundation at Camberwell, but it just happened to be the year that they amalgamated Camberwell Wimbledon and Chelsea foundations into one building at Wilson Road, Camberwell, which was just a, a nightmare, as you can imagine, because a room for 100 people turned into a room for 400 people. Uh, contact hours were slashed, you know, it was kind of like an administrative um, crisscross. Uh, so, I mean, for better or worse, I kind of decided not to pursue art further than that, so I went to Goldsmiths and did History of Art. Just because, like, you know, as many people do, they have a kind of this like, nebulous passion for the arts. Um, but they kind of have no real sense of where that can yeah. go. Mm-hmm. So I thought history of art is probably like the best bet, just get some kind of historical, conceptual grounding. And Goldsmiths was all contemporary. I mean, you, you learn from basically the beginning of modernism forward, but really focused on post-modernism forward. Uh, and that was super attractive to me. I, I mean, obviously, I love all art of all genres and all ages, but I had a particular kind of fascination with all things kind of weird and indescribable. So I went to Goldsmiths. I uh, was never never really into kind of producing shows. Uh, I just really liked writing. I was super into, you know, as Goldsmiths kind of is, like very long jargon, <laughs> jargon-riddled theoretical essays about things. Um, uh, and I love that, uh, but... Um, eventually I kind of, you know, it just wasn't really like giving me what I wanted in terms of some kind of physical result at the end of the work. Uh, you'd kind of send it to someone and then they might say, oh yeah, I've read that, that was lovely, but that was about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I got into curating because I actually started working, um, funnily enough, as a trainee at Bowl Tenancies, um, five years ago, which is where I still am now, but, uh, and that really gave me some kind of hands-on experience in kind of some of the most straightforward roles like front of house stewarding. Um, but also I did some kind of backstage production, say, and like teching and my first kind of flavour of installing artworks. Um, for those of you that don't know, Bell Tenancy is like this huge um, space on the top four floors of the Peckham multi-storey car park. And every year between May and September we have... Uh, a kind of pool of huge um, site-specific sculptures there. And, uh, yeah, so I started doing a little bit of teching, working on it, and through that I got really interested in, like, the production of artworks and exhibitions. And uh, did a show, the first show I did, 
And the first of the kind of three shows I've done <laughs> was uh, a show at the um, the Art Academy on Warth Road with a friend and artist, Lewis Henderson, called Slapdash for No Cash. That was in October, no, September last year. And that was the first show I ever kind of did. Um, it lasted curated, like, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, that one was slightly more curated. Like, there was, like, a concept, and we were, like, selecting artists, and, you know, we kind of wrote an essay for it. It was, I guess that was more kind of curatorially driven. Um, and then that was it, basically. You did that. It was super good. It lasted two days, you know, as most of these kind of pop-up things do. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, moved on, and I was just working at um, Bill Tendencies and Hannah Barry, and uh, there was a show that... I kind of co-curated, I guess, at the um, gallery, the Hannah Barry, with Ralph Hunter Mengers, who's yeah. a great, great um, painter. Um, so we, we'd met each other working at Bold Tendencies, and we'd uh, been invited by Hannah Barry to kind of propose a show for the gallery. And uh, we did. It was called The Unlimited Dream Company. It was, um, it was eight artists... Um, all of them very young, mostly London-based. And that was kind of a huge success. And I think that was kind of the turning point where I got really interested. Uh, the Slapdash for No Cash show had been a huge success, but the it, it wasn't that uh, it wasn't successful, it just it was a kind of smaller operation, basically. Uh, and then when we were working at the gallery, obviously, the, the kind of footfall and the interest and the press, and like it was this huge deal... And I just started working at a gallery and it was a kind of like a you know, wind rush of things of having to like learn how to talk about a show properly. Yeah. Uh, learn how to talk about a show differently to various people. Uh, you know, you have to talk about it very differently when you have kind of students come, when you have a collector come, when you have someone from the press come, mm. when speaking to another gallerist. You know, yeah. there's very, you have to come incredibly dexterous with your language and know how to talk about art in the correct ways. Uh, to kind of get the desired effect. And I think that was what I found so interesting. The fact that I could have this one show, but every day I would have to approach it in a completely different way. Um, so that, yeah, it did get me really on the kind of, um, the hype of curating. But as I say, I still wouldn't call myself a curator. Um, I think there are so many curators out there that do incredible work. Um, you know, it's that kind of specialism. Uh, really what interested me was kind of producing and organising and bridging and maybe you can describe that as curating something yeah. you probably would but I think um, I would yeah I think I, I have this kind of like archaic understanding of the curator as like the specialist in 18th century Japanese ceramics you know, that like <laughs> yeah. takes care of this collection uh, but yeah I just got super into like uh, basically introducing people to other people and introducing work to other people and just you know making that kind of stuff happen being a connector yeah, an interlocutor. That yeah. was kind of like how I saw it. Um, so it was actually by chance that this kind of whole collective ending thing happened. James Kapper, who's part of the three alongside uh, myself and Billy Fraser, uh, he is represented by the Hanabari Gallery. Mm -hmm. uh, he makes these kind of large hydraulic um, mobile sculptures, like really big. He's currently making a work called Mud Skipper, which is going to. Uh, it's a kind of. It's a boat, right? Yeah, it's it's a it's a boat that's like twelve meters long, eleven tons, and uh, <laughs> and, uh, and and it's going to sail down the Thames, um, uh, 
date TBC, but I think uh, next springtime, and walk out of the Thames onto Battersea Jetty. Like shed, boat shed, almost. Yeah, <laughs> so that's the kind of thing he's involved in. Uh, but anyway, I'd had to do some work early at the gallery and kind of visiting his studio and helping him write some text about his work, um, kind of uh, provide some reference points and, you know. Uh, but he just gave me a call one day and was like, oh, Charlie, you know, you should come come have a look at this project. It's, it's really interesting. I think you'd love it. And uh, I honestly had no idea what he was on about. That was all he said. And then the next week, I was invited to go to the pub, this Spit and Sawdust pub on the Old Can Road. And... Uh, James was there having a pint with this guy that I'd never seen before in my life, and it was Billy Fraser, who since that day I've spoken to all day, every day, <laughs> for 12 months straight, in this kind of strange love affair. But, um, and yeah, he kind of just said, because, because we got to know each other well, and I'd helped kind of write some stuff about his work, he thought I might be interested in this, in this potential project. And uh, he knew Billy because Billy's studio was opposite and Billy's a fantastic painter um, amongst many other things, but also curates shows in his spare time too. So he did a really interesting project called Extended Cool and that was in various iterations and that was all um, housed inside um, red telephone boxes around London. Super, super kind of eccentric <laughs> approach to exhibition making, but it was a huge success and uh so James invited me and Billy down to the pub where James knew their kind of uh, unofficial janitor who lived upstairs above the pub who he had kind of fabricated for back in the day installing kitchens in Bermondsey. And uh, yeah, long story short, we kind of got invited by the pub to do a year's worth of shows and exhibitions um, across there. They have huge downstairs and upstairs, a terrace, a huge smoking garden out the back. Um, and yeah, that was how kind of Absinthe was born, which is this huge project, which has just come to an end. Um, Isn't there one more? No, the pub renovating. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Which is uh, which a massive shame. Uh, it's been going for eight months yeah. uh, and it was supposed to be 12, but it was inbuilt to the very fabric of the project that basically the pub were in a kind of um, troublesome fiscal position. Okay. Uh, so they'd invited us uh, and given us this huge space in kind and a lot of other support in kind and also some kind of just generous support. Yeah. Um, uh, and <clears throat> as far as their kind of agenda was, uh, you know, we were there to kind of bring people to the pub and make it exciting, you know, mm. give it a culture. Um, and that's what we did for eight months uh, and it was super successful and, uh, you know, we did these three huge shows. Every part of you had over 800 people come. Wow. Like, really insane numbers. Um, we were having events fortnightly at one point, which, when everyone's working full-time jobs, it was really, really hard, but really, really successful. Um, but, yeah, they've had to kind of make a decision now to renovate. So, show three was deinstalled on Sunday just past, and... Um, that's the end of our life in the pub. But we have a new new project that we're now working on immediately. Okay. Straight away, it's just fine. <laughs> uh, I kind of thought that I was going to have like a moment's gasp to rest, but we've now uh, managed to kind of secure this big warehouse down in Deptford. Oh, amazing. Um, which had some, it's called Artworks Creekside, and it used to have some studios there. Mm. Billy got kicked out of his studio 
uh, like four days before we the there, opening the of the second show. Yeah, yeah we were there last I think week. We were there, yeah. Oh, uh, in Deptford. Yeah. yeah. Oh, great. So you've seen Rhiannon's Re- yeah. studio there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Fantastic. So yeah. So managed to go there looking for a studio. Found these kind of twelve pod-like units with one artist there. Saying, saying that he was fed up and he was leaving. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, through a kind of minutiae of conversations with the landlord and buildings manager, they managed to secure some investment from them. Bulldoze all of the studios were originally there, and we're currently in the process of rebuilding 12 studios um, and a gallery space there. And we have all the artists confirmed to move in, Rhiannon being one yeah, of them. Yeah, it's an incredible space, that. I really yeah. like it. Yeah, so the, hopefully that'll all be up and running um, sometime early October, but... So it's a heck of a lot of work. We got, yeah. I mean, we've got to literally re-concrete the floor. Yeah. Which is like a, kind of like a heavy industry <laughs> yeah. at this point. But we've got James Kaffer uh, with his kind of industrial studio of um, scary looking heavy machinery machine. <laughs> <laughs> that we can call upon. Um, so something that you kind of mentioned or alluded to, which I think would be interesting to bring up. Um, it sounds like a lot of what you have done was almost unplanned it's like say absinthe was this chance meeting almost or um how do i put it it was it was it wasn't something that was like a long planning process and um it's not something that you decided uh long in advance and then started working on um same with this studio that you're studios that you're opening up um did you at any point feel like you were kind of winging it because I think a lot of us in the art world do um, mm-hmm. kind of wing it a lot of the time, and it's not something that people are ever that willing to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, <laughs> straightforwardly, yeah. I think that uh, I actually felt most like I was winging it when I was writing about art. Yeah. When I was at uni, like when I was first trying to conceptualize like what I thought art was, mm-hmm. uh, when I was first trying to you know write kind of historical essays, like I really didn't know what I was talking about. It's it's super hard, I think, until you spend like a lot of physical time with artists and like in the, the art world expanded kind of term. Yeah, uh, it's kind of it's very hard to just like go from being a kind of sprightly 16 year old doing some paintings at GCSE wanting to go to uni and study and learn about art to actually really gain what it's about like I think there's a really steep learning curve that you go through um, when you start trying to produce shows and like actually have to deal with artists and like what they think art is what they think is important to their practice so I was super winging it when I was talking about art but the beauty of the obfuscating language of kind of art theory <laughs> <laughs> is that everyone gets away with it because no one understands yeah. what it's saying anyway. Um, but I definitely think, I think the, the shows at um, the Art Academy and at Hannah Barry were less winging because the first one was really small in scale. It was fairly straightforward. It was like, we have a theme, slapdash for no cash. It's about artists that using kind of found materials uh, and like reinventing technology. It had a kind of quite clear direction. Mm. Um, so there was, you know, there are only so many ways you could go wrong. Uh, you know, the hang's not right, or like something yeah. doesn't turn up in time, or all that kind of stuff. The show at the gallery was um, uh, the same in a way, kind of Ralph uh, was a really, really um, important mentor actually at that point. Um, uh, and also Hannah was also a really important mentor and Deanna and the rest of the team at the gallery. Um, 
because why I had at that point was a lot of friends I'd been to uni with who were really good artists. Um, but in terms of like doing a proper show, like proper show with all of the surrounding kind of content, I really had no idea what I was doing. Like, you know, I was suggesting some artists I thought were really cool mm. uh, and they might be interested in and maybe some of their audiences would be interested in and also maybe would get them some new audiences. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of like how to really, you know, create a list of works, how to create like price listings, how to, you know, communicate with people, it really wasn't something that I knew how to do. And there was this really fast learning curve, just being like put into rooms where you suddenly had to deal with that stuff. Um, so I learned a lot doing that. And then when it came to this really big absinthe project, I mean, the whole thing is in one way or another been winging it. I mean, we've had to deal with uh, a really um, just a vast project that is way bigger than any of us or even bigger than the sum of its parts. Like we've really had to go the extra mile in terms of getting the people involved in the project to help create it, yeah. right? And that was one of the driving kind of philosophies of it anyhow, was that there'd be a sense of ownership between all of the people that were, you know, exhibiting in it. So all of the artists that showed works had the opportunity to do events. Um, we did a residency that they were invited to. We actually have another project. There's a black box exhibition space at Farnham University that has just promised two shows and um, support uh, both financially and with um, materials and workshops for absent artists exclusively. Oh, that's great. Um, and various other things, but the point being that it was such a big project it couldn't it literally couldn't have just been achieved yeah. by Billy, James and I. Mm. It took a heck of a lot of people working together to make it something. Uh, also, we're dealing with um, the kind of infrastructure and politics of the pub itself, which, although all the people that worked there were, you know, incredibly nice and incredibly supportive, there are also parts where communication is like not wholly clear. You know, we're dealing with contemporary art, which is super weird, and it takes kind of a while to get what its, you know, what its aims are. And obviously, the pub has a very simple prerogative of people in the pub. Buying drinks. Yeah. And, you know, and our yeah. people are famously <laughs> um, scrupulous in how much they spend. Especially, especially <laughs> on drinks. Pubs. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, we, free all the time. we keep on getting people there, but they just wouldn't be spending their money. <laughs> um, so, you know, there are really difficult um, kind of moments where you're having to, the first time dealing with parties who had no idea about what you were doing, basically. Yeah. Um, you know, there are super complex points say, big projects we do at Bold Tenancies, uh, where you'll be doing one site-specific installation and there'll be four or five different partners um, supplying either in-kind support or financial support. Mm. Uh, and kind of marrying them all together uh, is complex, but most of them are in the game of, you know, producing one way or another. And in, in you know, whether it's the performing arts or the fine arts, they've usually done a project where they're dealing with kind of creativity in that sense. Uh, whereas the pub, you know, when we first turned up, they had vintage posters from the 1960s, <laughs> badly framed with cables hanging everywhere. Like, uh, it w there wasn't the same kind of thing. And there was a lot of work that we had to do in the first instance. It took like six months of prep to even open the first show because there was so much kind of, uh, internal preparation we had to do to then communicate to the pub for them to get on board with what we were doing and uh, 
basically convince them to be as liberal as possible with what we're allowed to do. Because when it started off, it was like, okay, you can hang a show. But, you know, their idea of a show was was paintings on a wall, right? Mm. It wasn't yeah. <laughs> size specific installations like <laughs> drilled through the cross beams and hung like really expensive ceramics from the ceiling, you know. Uh, so that we had to really like get across to them how important and valuable that could be to their pub. And, you know, that was difficult. But that, that goes back to something we were talking about annoyingly before we started recording hmm. um, about um, the limitations that certain projects place upon you and how you can use those to force you to work in ways that you wouldn't naturally do so mm-hmm. and, and how they can that can be quite beneficial yeah i think that i mean it's definitely true as you said we were talking about it um earlier that it, yeah so as i said before there was uh, this great kind of idea from one of the artists i spoke to called matt copson who we commissioned the bold tendencies this year where he said that every time he creates an artwork basically he has an idea or a concept uh, and then the struggle uh, of creating the artwork is just this kind of like bare hand um, wrestling match to get that concept to become a physical thing uh, in whatever form it ends up taking. Uh, and, you know, working at Bold Tendencies has been a great eye-opener to this kind of thing, being that it's a kind of open-air rooftop, brutalist car park. I mean, it's really, like, um, bleak in many ways in terms of kind of installing things. It's super difficult. There's... I mean, the weather plays such an emphasized role on what you can even Everything's going to get damaged, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, hopefully not. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you have to account for, you know, like really like straightforward things like it's going to rain. What's yeah. going to happen to your work when it rains? Yeah. Um, it's going to be windy. Is it going to suddenly become a sail and fly off? Like, even in the sun, is this concrete going to bake so much that it just splinters and cracks and demolishes? Are any of them going to end up being lightning rods if it if there's a thunderstorm? Yeah, precisely. Oh, my God. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> I hope not. But, yeah, that's the kind of, like, really, like, you know, basic thing you have to you have to think about. I was speaking to um, Helen Faby the other day, who's the um, head of curatorial program at um, Yorkshire Sculpture Park. And they had a huge artwork once, which was, um, I can't remember the name of the artist now have to find it afterwards but uh two huge helicopter propeller blades uh in the roof of a kind of barn uh which were spinning and you basically walk underneath them you know i mean that's like terrifying as sin uh, as an artwork in itself but they had a really like two days before the opening uh they had uh someone come in complete uh you know wasn't involved in the project was just kind of coming to see the show and was like oh have you thought about the um uh the kind of um rotation waves it creates a certain kind of frequency oh no <laughs> uh like a very specific frequency uh which would mean that basically the propeller blades would very slowly move out of joint and then as soon as they move out of joint they can suddenly go out of joint oh wow uh and which is something like no one in their production team had even yeah. thought would be why, a thing you, yeah. yeah uh so they had to the day before the opening have someone sit there for 24 hours straight with a red laser pointing from the floor to the center of the propeller blade uh and if it moved a millimeter they were about to cancel the show wow. I mean, thankfully it didn't but yeah. it was this thing of like oh my god there are all these very weird invisible phenomena that could cancel like <laughs> yeah. anything you're doing um but I mean, on a slightly more uplifting note, like it is those strange things that often make people have to become really in- ingenious. Ingenious. 
No, no, no. Um, genius. Gen- well, let's go for genius. <laughs> <laughs> um, genius with what they're what they're having to create, right? And I have so much respect for the work in kind of site specific and installation works because I mean it is a complete nightmare to do. Um, yeah, hands off them. <laughs> <laughs> so with collective ending, um, you sort of focus on early career and emerging artists, a bit mm-hmm. like Delphium, really. Um, what's uh, what is it about the demographic that you've that sort of appeals to you about mm. showing that sort of art and that sort of career level well I mean it's kind of interesting I mean I would love to have some Donald Judd sculptures in my shows don't get me wrong <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I think that I mean it's probably the same with you guys and like there are loads of people out there doing this kind of stuff like there's there's so many project spaces in South London that are kind of devoted to this kind of thing um, it's like Dirty House in Peckham, that Eagle Art. It's a really interesting collective doing a lot of stuff for this kind of, kind of level of career at the moment. Um, and really, I think that it's basically people do this because no one else is doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the fundamental axis of it is uh, uh, galleries. Uh, I mean, in the, in the kind of late 80s, there just wasn't an art scene in London, right? I mean, you had you had Marine Paley doing a thing in the East. Uh, you had Cork Street, and you had kind of Anthony Doffe, and that was literally the London art scene, the London art market. Uh, and then, obviously, through the nineties, things exploded, um, and uh, opportunities became huge for artists. I mean, it was still super competitive and like fraught, and no one. It's not just to say that if you became an artist, you'd immediately become rich, but like there were way more opportunities emerging for artists to like do things. Mm. Uh, in Britain, funnily enough, I mean, we've been like to the point of xenophobic about art for you know centuries since the Reformation. We really saw anything uh, that was kind of you know beautiful or ornate as this kind of popery. This kind, of, and there was a huge period after I think Charles I where. Uh, they actually destroyed thousands and thousands of churches around England in this kind of great purge of art. Um, but anyway, they, uh, there was a kind of huge explosion. Art became cool and known in London. And, you know, um, it's not actually in so many countries you have kind of uh, contemporary art, like, in all of the kind of tabloid headlines, right? That's actually quite, like, a unique thing. And um, Britain really kind of paved the way, actually, for that. Um, but then what's happened with galleries now is that it's really just become so polarised uh, kind of big blue chip galleries uh, dominating the market and the scene and they will increasingly so um, deal with younger artists which they never used to really do um, so they'll start to you know bring in artists at an earlier stage of their career which is normally where your kind of focus section freeze commercial galleries will be working with artists uh so they're kind of at a loss they're having to like you know really um rabble together talent uh and do well at supporting it and managing it to be successful but they're really being pushed out massively by the huge galleries uh and then where is it that kind of you know recent grad emerging mid-career however you want to kind of define it artists you know how do they survive and exhibit their work and support one another and yeah do their thing basically and that's where we all like to think of ourselves as playing a role you know we try and 
use what we have, our skills, our services, our connections, whatever it is that we've kind of amassed that might be useful for artists to help them do that. Um, which is, I think, a really fun thing to do also. I mean, yeah. like, it's kind of this vicarious, um, vicariously beautiful thing, right? If you just spend your time with artists, you know, it's, a, it's just a great thing. And uh, I think that's the reason why most of us do it is because we love art, we love artists. And uh, even if we're not kind of talented enough with a brush, um, <laughs> although we are seeing behind some of your incredible works. <laughs> <yeah>. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that there's something to be gained personally for us guys doing it. Uh, you know, there's a reason we're in it for ourselves also in a very simple way. Like, we get something out of spending our time here with these people. But also, you know, no one else is going to support these people unless you basically self-organise and do these things yourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the reason that we're all kind of going for it. There seems to be a lot of um, DIY, unconventional, artist-led projects happening at the moment. Um, I was wondering, do you think that is a product of almost the democratization of the art world because of social media? It's now so much easier for artists to put things together to get to get people there to connect with buyers, et cetera, et cetera. Well, yeah, no, yes, and no. I think the like project spaces and all that kind of stuff uh, has always existed. Um, you know, like in the kind of late 80s, like, the punks were doing their own shows, like, all, all, all over the place, in London and Camden, wherever. Uh, and really, I mean, the growth of those things has been in parallel with the growth of art, uh, and especially contemporary art, as, um, as a market, really, as an industry, as a thing which has some value in this country, is it's growing alongside that. I mean... So insofar as kind of, uh, and it's actually probably gone down, you know, since uh, the kind of um, new labor years, uh, the more that housing, abandoned properties get bought up, you know, squatters rights was being kind of attacked, was a huge blow for the kind of ability of DIY um, things to happen. Um, so in a way, it kind of probably decreased, I imagine, um, as much as it was increasing. Uh, or at least it was increasing, but it was getting harder to do it. <laughs> um, and I think that with regards to social media, I mean, it definitely does help. Yeah, I mean, quite straightforwardly, like most people uh, will have, you know, have, will have a segment of their network that they met on Instagram now, yeah. like 100%. I mean, even people like Hans Ulrich Obras talk about finding new talent on Instagram. It's gone to this point, mm -hmm. like, where, you know, I all, I'm perpetually talking to people on Instagram. Yeah. It's, like, one of the major resources. And although, like, I go to shows and clearly that's still, like, the better way, I think we can say, of, like, interacting with artworks, interacting with artists, meeting people, etc. Um there definitely is something which it adds, I guess, to a better sense of kind of um, broader connection between people. Um, for instance, like you could connect with an artist that lives and works in Paris in, in a second that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. Mm. Um, whether or not it actually helps kind of DIY projects have more success, I don't really know. I mean, uh, Dat Eagle is a really good example of this. They're like... Um, 
kind of Vanessa and Martin, this duo, and they do a lot of uh, studio visits for their website, and um, they've started doing more and more shows. Uh, and they they have a huge social media presence. It's something that's kind of like defined um, a lot of what they've done so far. Mm. And uh, but I'm not sure how much that can contribute to really their their shows being better than they are, or like how they acquire spaces to do their shows, or even like how many people turn up to the shows. I think that it does help propel them as a brand or one as a brand. Mm. Uh, I think that very few people would even understand what Collective Ending was without our website and our Instagram page. Otherwise, they'd just know it's absent. Mm. Uh, or they'd know, oh, that's the thing that like Charlie, Billy and James are up to. Mm. Uh, I think that in terms of developing some kind of recognisable name to projects that are happening, then it definitely helps in that sense. Um, I mean, social media is really weird in the other world. Like, I spoke to someone recently uh, who was writing something for The Economist about um, is the is the age of the gallerist over because basically artists can just connect with co- uh, collectors straight over Instagram to sell their work direct. There's no need for a gallery. Uh, I'm writing a similar thing to oh, really? for the upcoming Delphian book. Yeah. What's your What's your take on it? Um, I'm I'm writing it more as a exploration of the idea, so mm. I haven't fully decided yet. Yeah. Um, and I'm kind of using, I suppose, using the the exercise of writing it as to explore mm-hmm. the ideas surrounding it. Mm. So. I think that I think that um, it definitely doesn't spell the age of the gallery. I think maybe it's it's it suggests that the the role of the gallery has changed. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the uh, galleries are basically. Um, they're not the gatekeepers anymore. Yeah, they're not the gatekeepers. They're more just like service providers. <laughs> like there are things that they can offer an artist at various points in their career. Mm. Um, uh, that kind of, yeah, I guess the, that old term kind of representing is slightly like out of date in that sense because um, they're not the gatekeepers anymore. Uh, but they do provide services that can't be matched, I don't think. Uh, unless you're like an incredibly... Um, busybody artist that wants to like run their whole uh, you know it, it really is there's a lot that galleries still do and um, I don't think kind of social media will ever usurp that in a way but um, yeah I think that it probably does have like an overall net positive uh, role in kind of uh, the DIY scene so to speak so if you had unlimited time money space what would be your one ideal project you'd love to do there was no restrictions. <laughs> wow. Um, I can't, I mean, I think it would be too much to kind of figment up my own idea. But in terms of things I've been to recently that we kind of felt like that, I think one of the best shows that I've been to ever uh, was Infinity Mix um, at 180 The Strand. Uh, Do you guys go? It yeah, was like a huge... So a huge warehouse just next to Somerset, um, Somerset House, um, and uh, they did a huge show a couple of years ago called Infinity Mix, which was uh, exclusively video art. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, and then they they've done several shows since. One was uh, Stranger Futures. Is it where Laz did Brutal? Yeah, it's the same, yeah, it's the same right. place. Yeah. 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 Um, and that was just epic. Uh, I remember there was this article on a uh, freeze recently. I mean, it was a quite like on the nose trite article about. Um, uh, about Bergheim, I think, and Ber- <laughs> Bergheim's relationship to contemporary art. 
<laughs> that sounds very vice. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe it was vice. I don't know. That. Um, but uh, the the premise was that for all um, art press releases talk about kind of these utopic spaces beyond gender and class and race and uh, like you've never felt more <laughs> classed, <laughs> raised, or gendered when you're in private views and mm. you know blue chip galleries. Right? Yeah, uh, and. I mean, I wrote my thesis on um, rave music in the UK from 1988 to 1994 uh, when I did my Master's in Cultural Studies. So I was super and always have been into music. And uh, I think that the point of this kind of freeze article is to say that, you know, nightclubs really are actually venues where you can kind of get to this kind of, at least kind of like get closer to this uh, sense of identity, which is, you know sloughs off all the things of kind of race, identity, class, gender. Um, and what Infinity Mix did, that show, was basically create an art exhibition which was attuned to those principles. Uh, so there was absolutely no um, linear format to how you're supposed to go through the show. It was a genuine labyrinth warehouse uh, with no directions, just I think it was something like 45 major video artworks. Wow. Uh, from like Mayan Creed to, oh God, John um, Akinfra, you know, these like huge, huge um, works. Uh, and people, you know, you, it was one of those things, as cliche as it sounds like, you go in there for six hours and you kind of forget how long you've gone in there and you'd mm. watch something on repeat for two hours. <laughs> you kind <laughs> of forget where you were. And uh, I always used to think that people were super, were, were almost kind of like being disingenuous when they said they kind of had those experiences in art galleries. I don't know. I, I do find art really, in, you know, inspiring in that sense. Uh, but have I ever looked at Rothko and like cried? Probably not. Uh, and like if you have was that a real I'm going to go on a limb here and say that the people who claim they have a lot of them are probably lying yeah or, and, if, <laughs> and if they do if they have those because they've gone into it with a pre-conceived yeah. idea Thinking, that this oh, should be this really this. emotional yeah. experience yeah. Right? Uh, but that show really did I like I lost all my reservations and I just totally got lost in it for hours went back like four times and every show they did there since it was the same thing uh, and I, they were just like the most phenomenal things I've ever seen. I'm really excited to see if they do some more shows there. I know that they're starting to build offices there now because I know that Freeze have moved their offices there. Right. Uh, and various other people in there, you know, there's like cafes with kind of fake fern plants popping up everywhere and all that kind of stuff, and like shabby chic. Um, <laughs> but that was the kind of, uh, for me, one of those kind of apex moments where it's like, whoa, this is like what you could do with some serious money time yeah. and space yeah uh, and they all have like huge partners these things um and they're often like collaborating with like the new museum uh, from new york or whatever so it's like these very big substantial players uh, the Lison did uh this and did a, a show there as well um which was less good because there was some sculpture in it <laughs> so it kind of had some Tony Craggs where they're just kind of like lying around it's <laughs> just like don't really understand why but, uh, but yeah well, so I've, I've always really loved that kind of um, it sounds quite basic in a way but yeah just like raw spaces uh, you know that's in like a huge concrete warehouse like Bold Tenancies where I work is a huge brutalist car park mm -hmm. uh, Absinthe was just a pub like a really run down pub this thing in Deadford is a warehouse uh, and it's just really basic, but it makes people feel comfortable, right? 
It's like when you go to the opera, it's not actually the opera that you're kind of feeling stuffy by. It's the fact you're in this huge theatre house with like golden ornate and tablatures <laughs> everywhere. And like, it's often a setting that, you know, yeah, makes absolutely. people feel uneasy. Mm. It's not contemporary art, which is off-putting to people. Mm. It's like the framework around contemporary art, which is what puts people off. Yeah, solitist. So you put, put some crazy stuff in a pub and people love it, you know. People, I remember we had a Thomas Langley in uh, the absence show, which was one of his um, Buy Mama House paintings. And, uh, you know, people just got it immediately, right? They were mm-hmm. coming in there, and I, I really love that. That, like, speaks to me, yeah. you know. I was an adolescent in the kind of late 80s, and, like, that was that was the entire philosophy of, like, being brought up in a state. It was like, I'm going to work my way out of this, and I'm going to buy my mama house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was just great, because, you know, I doubt people had that same kind of experience when they saw it at Cobb Gallery. Mm. You know, nothing against the Cobb Gallery show. It was great, but, like, I think that you just, you just take it, you put it somewhere else, and... Disarming all massive. Yeah. People don't have their their defensive, I'm in a gallery looking at art hat on. They have a, I'm hanging out in a pub. And yeah, then, and yeah. things definitely just accrue a completely different meaning when you when you shift. And that that's actually a really interesting thing. I think that's probably what's quite interesting about the term curator. Uh, is the idea of again, an artist makes work, and the artist has their their idea of what it means or what it could mean or however open they might think it is. Uh, but the curator is the person that says, right, okay, well, if we put it in this gallery, it's going to mean a certain thing. Mm-hmm. But hold on, if I put it in this pub, it's going to mean a completely different thing. And then the responsibility becomes the curators, not the artist, for how that work is received and how people look at it, what they get from it. So I think in that way, I am really interested in the term curator. I think that if a curator is someone that can basically recontextualize artworks um, for people to have new experiences. Sure, I'm into it. All right, well, uh, another, uh, another question that we ask often because it always um, gives unique and very useful answers is speaking as a curator slash facilitator slash connector or whatever you would like to call yourself. If you were to give a piece of advice to an early career artist um, for what would basically benefit them that they might not, they might not realize, what would that be? Mm, Interesting. Uh, Well, I mean, it's tough to give an artist advice. Uh, An advice for artists. I I once heard, I mean, this is actually like a really brutal piece of advice. It's not like a, it's not like a, you know, Oh, you should sign up to this mailing list. And, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but someone, I can't remember for life me who now said to, oh, maybe they didn't even say it to me. Maybe I just heard it somewhere. Um, they said that um, to be an artist, being talented isn't just enough. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, this is, you know, not aimed at anyone in particular, but some artists are so talented, right? And you just almost feel like, if you just paid a little bit more attention to your like administrative yeah. life, like you'd be killing it right now. Uh, I think that being an artist is not just like being super creative. Like there's an entire work ethic and like life that comes with being an artist. I'm not saying that you have to be like dogmatically waking up at six a.m. with a black coffee, doing emails, like <laughs> uh, speculatively emailing people from the crack of dawn. But uh, you know. 
I guess from the perspective of someone who facilitates or tries to facilitate artists, artists that are actually responsive and like doing their stuff is really helpful. And uh, you often remember that a lot, I think, um, as maybe people would probably not like to admit it, I think. But I think curators and, you know, curators always talk about how uh, their perception of work changes after getting to know the artist. Yeah. Uh, like big, big curators. I always say that they, you know, they don't necessarily know the artist. They have this big institutional show. And then they get to know the artist. By the end of it, they're friends and they look at the art in completely new ways, right? Mm. And I think that, I mean, that just that dribbles down to like the most basic ways. Like if you deal with people that are helpful, proactive, they want to help promote what you're doing. They want to get stuck in. Like you often see their work in a different way, strangely. Yeah. Uh, and I think that basically, uh, the advice would be just to like, yeah, think of artists as something more comprehensive than your practice. Yeah. Get better at the business. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, yeah. I mean, you. I mean, <laughs> if if you want to get good at selling your work, that's also helpful. Um, <laughs> But yeah, just like, I don't know, like, you know, just think about it in an expanded sense. Like, Billy is an artist, first and foremost. He's a painter and he does resin works. And, you know, he spends a lot of time just in his studio with his practice. But really what makes Billy so successful at what he does is that any time another artist needs a hand doing something, he'll, he'll put his practice aside and work on their thing, mm. right? Uh, or he'll help try and put them in a show. Or if he knows someone, he'll connect them. Uh, and he just works super, super hard. Uh, and all the people that I know that are successful just work really hard. It's not so much about whether they're talented or not. And that kind of comes back to what you were saying about winging it. Uh, I always feel like I'm winging it in some sense, but the only way that I kind of get through it is just by trying to like work really hard, basically. Uh, and people will recognize that more than anything else, I think. That's very much our approach, too. Like mm. we, we didn't study curation. We, didn't, yeah. we never even really planned to become curators. Yeah. Um, we just mm. dived in it at the mm. deep end. All right. Well, that is uh, the end. Thank you very much. Yeah. Great. Thank, Thank you. you. Done. <laughs> <laughs>